The scripture reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 12, verses 20 through 24. It can be found on page 921 in the Black Bibles. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Elizabeth. Good to have you all here. Good morning. My name is John Trapp. I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King, and it is the delight to have all of you here, particularly those of you who are visiting maybe for First Communions or baptism, welcome. Uh, and if you are a first-time visitor, uh, just one thing I want you to know about Christ the King, maybe you haven't been to a religious thing in a while, or maybe you've been going to them your whole life, but we're all in the same boat. We all show up in need of grace. But what we believe here at this church is that all of us who show up in the same boat with this great need for grace have the opportunity to know a great savior for our need, who, can, who is sufficient to supply all of the need that we have. So as we open his word, um, we, we look to him uh, and consider this grace that he holds out to us. Uh, a song that we sang earlier this, uh, this morning talked about an Ebenezer. It's a weird word to sing in a song. Uh, it's not Scrooge that it's talking about. When it says, here I raise my Ebenezer, and Ebenezer is this Old Testament um, practice, this ancient practice where uh, people would set up a stone to remember something that had happened. And there's an example of this in 1 Samuel 7. God rescues his people from the Philistines. He helps them win a battle that they probably had no business winning, really, unless the Lord had delivered them. And so they set up this stone so that every time they passed that stone, they would remember God showed up for us when we, when we needed it. God was there for us. And I think that this passage that we're looking at today would have been an Ebenezer for the early church. It would have been an Ebenezer for the first four centuries of Christians who went through unbelievable persecution. Persecution ranging from social microaggressions all the way to the Roman Colosseum and being set on fire. That's the kind of persecution that Christians were facing historically after this story. But this story would have been an Ebenezer that God sees and he cares about the trials and the troubles that we face in following him. So our outline this morning is gonna be three things. Intimidating power, a mighty fall, and then staying power. Intimidating power, mighty fall, staying power. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, um, thank you that you have given us your scriptures, that you've preserved it for us, that we may um, know more and more of who you are and our need for you, and we pray that you would be with us now as we study, that your spirit would apply these words to our heart. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So we start off with intimidating power. 
So it's kind of almost part two of the passage that we looked at last week where this king, Herod, he's the grandson of Herod the Great, if you remember from the Christmas story, who tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. So this is his grandson, Herod Agrippa, and he is violent just like his grandfather. In fact, earlier in Acts 12, Herod kills one of the key disciples in the early church, James. Jesus' close inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John. James is beheaded in Acts chapter 12, senselessly. Herod just does it because he knows that his constituents will like it. And so he has the power to do it, and he does it. And then he arrests Peter with the plans to do the same thing to Peter. But God miraculously rescues Peter. And so Herod instead kills the people who are supposed to keep Peter in prison. This is kind of just who Herod is. He's a bully. And so now he shows up in his neighboring country, Phoenicia, to these key cities, Tyre and Sidon, And he's angry about something. Actually, we don't even know why he's angry. The text doesn't tell us. But that's just kind of how Herod seems to always be. He's angry. And the people of Tyre and Sidon know this. And so they begin to make preparations to receive this brooding, angry, bully political leader who's coming into their homeland. And so they kind of sidle up to this guy named Blastus, who's his chamberlain. And commentators say, like, when it says that they asked Blastus to make peace, the way that they would have gotten Blastus to do that is they would have bribed him. So they begin bribing people around Herod. And then Herod shows up and they begin to pander to Herod. Oh, the voice of a God, right? Bribery, pandering, bullying. I'm sure this sounds like nothing like American politics. Like, you know, like, probably doesn't ring any bells. But here we see that this king, who's the Judean king, he's relating to foreigners in their midst in a way that is completely anti-God's mission. And to illustrate that, I wanna zoom the lens out because any story that we read in the Bible is happening in the context of God's grand story, right? So in Genesis 12, When God starts the people of Israel with this man named Abram, God comes to Abram and he makes promises to Abram. He says, Abram, I'm gonna bless you. But he doesn't stop there. I think sometimes we think he stopped there. He doesn't stop there. He says, Abram, I'm gonna bless you. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so when he promises Abram this land and he gives him this land, do you know where he puts Abram? If he was just playing to bless Abram, he could have put him in like Iceland. You know, it's pretty, no one's gonna mess with you there. Nice little contained holy huddle in Iceland. I'm gonna bless you, Abram. You're gonna be my little holy huddle here on earth and no one's ever gonna mess with you. But instead, he puts him in Palestine, which when, when they go to Palestine, when God's people go to Palestine, it is the most diverse, most densely populated place on the planet. And God's mission to them is I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to the nations. And we see this happen early on in the story. One one example is Joseph. Joseph is a blessing to the nation 
of Egypt. God is pouring out his blessing to Egypt when they go through famine. Joseph is there to kind of tell them to store up before the famine kicks into gear because God gives them the ability to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and God spares the Egyptians and Israel because they're living their mission of being a blessing to the nations. But here, Herod is being as anti-missional as possible. He's not being a blessing. He's being a bully. He's being a bully rather than sharing his resources. He is plan- he's threatening to end what's been a thousand-year-old trade agreement between Phoenicia and Israel. And Phoenicia completely depended upon Israel for their food in their trade agreement. And so if Herod shuts that down, they are in big trouble, and Herod knows it. And so he's lording his power over them, and they're having to pander to him. Herod is, he shows up in all of his pomp and circumstance. Josephus, who was this, um, he was a, a Jewish historian, so he didn't write any of the Bible, but there's other historical documents about this event when Herod died. And Josephus records that Herod showed up in this silver robe. It was a robe threaded with silver. And in the morning when he, when he stood up to speak, the sunlight hit this robe that he was wearing and it was brilliant and everyone looked at him and that's why they're saying, wow, the voice of a God, he's like divine. And Herod is basking in his own glory. He is being, he's being as anti-God, at least anti-God of the Bible, as you can get. Because I want you to see how different Herod is from King Jesus. King Herod shames his victim to flex his power and lift himself up. King Jesus sets aside his power to put himself down and take on the shame of his people so that they can be lifted up. King Herod withholds his resources to the demise of his neighbors. King Jesus spends all his resources for the salvation of sinners who are his enemies. Herod treats his neighbors like enemies. Jesus treats his enemies like neighbors. Jesus is the ultimate fruition of the Genesis 12 blessing. God, listen, when God makes a promise, it's kind of amazing. God, who is boundless and limitless, puts limits on himself when he makes a promise because he will not break his promises. And he puts, when he makes a promise in Genesis 12, he's going to keep it. I'm going to bless the nations. And the way that he ultimately brings that to fruition is he becomes a man. He becomes Jesus. He is so determined to bless the nations that God becomes a man. And so my question that I want our church to consider, if you're a visitor, we're having a little family convo here for a second. Listen in. Question for our church to consider. Does our culture experience, when our culture thinks about what's a Christian, what image comes to their mind? A regular, everyday, secular person who doesn't believe in God, if you ask them what's a Christian, like what image comes to their mind? Is that image closer to Herod or Jesus? Do we imagine, <clears throat> do we imagine that the way that, to change the world is by grabbing political power like Herod or by dominating our neighbors like Herod 
or by withholding or hoarding our resources like Herod? Do we imagine that we'll be changing the world when others are declaring us to be praiseworthy like Herod? Henry Nouwen, in reflecting on uh, the history of the church, says this, the long painful history of the church is the history of people ever and again tempted to choose power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. What history do we want to participate in? What about you as an individual? Who do you bully? You know, it's an interesting experience for me being a uh, campus minister for seven years at the University of Texas. Um, one of the things that would happen is, you know, we had lots of kids who weren't believers who came to our ministry. It was really fun to get to see them kind of wrestle with their faith. But also, we had a lot of kids who would come from a church like this one, and they'd show up at the college campus, and they'd want to get involved. And so I got to know a lot of them as well. I got to hear their stories, go get coffee with them, counsel them, encourage them. And there was an interesting, like, common thread that I saw in kids who came from churches, from gospel-preaching, grace-believing churches. So many of those, of those kids would describe their relationship with their parents, and it sounded like their parents were bullies. It sounded like their experience of their parents, not always, but when their parents really wanted to, them to do something, when they wanted them to make sure they had a Texas OU date, <laughs> seriously, <laughs> Or when they wanted to make sure that their kids were staying, you know, in the lanes on school, when they wanted them to be getting stuff right, the kinds of, of strategies that were used were things like shame and pestering and resource withholding and not the grace that we say we believe. I'll never forget sitting across the table from one student like that. He was not from this church, but from, his dad was a leader um, in a church just like this from a different city. And this kid, a sweet kid, struggling in school. To hit, I mean, he's making B's. I was like, dude, you're fine. But he's, in his mind, struggling. And he's just all torn up about it and all twisted up about it. And he was worried about what his parents were going to say and what, what they were thinking. And it was kind of all that anxiety and stress was manifesting in all kinds of other ways that were just making his life kind of fall apart and dysfunction. And I'm sitting across the table from him and I'm trying to get to the heart of the matter with him. Like, what's really going on with you? And I, and I kind of asked that question. I was like, man, what, what is, if you could like just kind of drill down to the center of it. Like, what is, what's going on with you? What do you need? And he just broke. He just broke and he said, I just want my dad to be proud of me. What do our children experience from us? Do they experience the grace? What do our friends, what do our parents experience from us? What do our coworkers experience from us? What do our neighbors experience from us? What do our enemies experience from us? Do they experience the grace that we say that we actually have received from Jesus?
are we expressing that same kind of grace that we say that we have experienced in Christ? In one sense, we Christians can be like Herod. But in another sense, we also experience Herods in the world. We experience bullies, um, even bullies for what we believe or for who we are. And this story would have been, like I said, an Ebenezer to the church to remember the vanity of living like Herod, the vanity of Herod's power and how quickly it just falls apart. Um, so second point, a mighty fall, how quickly this power falls apart. Okay, kids, Disney movies, let's talk about this for a second. Have y'all ever noticed how terrifying some of the, the Disney characters are? Like the Disney villains? I had nightmares about Ursula till I was, I'm not gonna tell you how old I was, so it was embarrassing. But Ursula terrified me. But the one that really, really scared me was Cruella DeVille, right? Which if you think a little bit about Cruella's plan, she's maybe the most psychopathic Disney villain there. I mean, she's stealing puppies to make a coat. Like, just go to the store. What is, like, it is so bizarre. But I remember being so disturbed by Cruella DeVille. If she doesn't scare you, no evil thing will, right? And I remember being so creeped out by her the first time that I watched that movie. I didn't know what was gonna happen and it was just so terrifying. The experience of watching it the second time though was totally different. Sorry, I'm spoiler alert. But like the, the, the puppies get out okay. I knew, once I knew that the puppies were okay, watching the movie the second time and knowing that Cruella doesn't succeed, it changed the movie watching experience. And that's kind of what like rewatching a movie is like. You see the villain, you see that villain in a different light because you know that their downfall is coming. And y'all, the church is about to go through hundreds of years of looking at enemies. Enemies that seem absolutely unbeatable. I mean, the Roman Empire, Nero, are you kidding me? Diocletian, so powerful. And they're doing all kinds of things to the Christians, but they could remember stories like this, that God actually cares about making things right, that bullies will have a downfall. And Herod's downfall is real. Luke is not being artful when he describes Herod being eaten by worms. Luke is a doctor. He's a doctor. And Josephus, like I said, there's, there's other accounts of this happening. Josephus records that Herod had five days of abdominal pain before he died. He dies a horrible death, likely by parasites. This seemingly powerful king, this one who is withholding food from the Gentiles, was powerless to withhold himself from being food to the worms that were in his own body. That's how, how weak Herod actually is, how out of control Herod actually is. And this passage would have been a reminder to the church to not fear those bullies and to not participate with those bullies. And we need to remember that today too. 
that the bullies that we think we maybe need to align ourselves with in order to somehow get power, those bullies will have a downfall. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, it sounds like God's a bully. God smites Herod. How can God, how can God be wrathful and worthy of my worship? What if God's a bully? Well, I want you to think about what this theologian Miroslav Volf says. Miroslav Volf grew up in a war-torn area in um, former Yugoslavia. He's now a professor of theology at Yale. And this is what he says. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. So in order to be a nonviolent person, you must believe in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been violated, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of my worship. He says it takes the quiet of a suburban West for that theory that God would not judge to be born. But in a place like the place he grew up, where he's seen atrocities, he says, God has to put an end to the bullies if he's worthy of our worship. If, he love, if, he, if he's loving, if he cares, he must do something about the injustice in this world. And that's what this passage reminds us of. That bullies who, have a, who maybe, maybe have had a God-like voice in your life, maybe, maybe there are bullies from your story 20, 30, 50 years ago, or bullies in your life right now, and it, their voice has like a God-like weight in your life. This passage is here to show us that God cares about that and he will put an end to it and he will bring his justice upon it. God will have his justice. And kids, I, I wanna talk to you specifically here because I want you to hear that God cares about you very, very much. And if you're ever bullied, if you're bullied by another child, if you're bullied by another adult, they ever make you feel uncomfortable or afraid, you tell someone about it because it's not right. You tell a parent, you can tell a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a school teacher, you tell somebody about it because God does not stand for bullies. And he does not want that in your life. And he's put adults and people in your life so that that wouldn't happen. Friends, aren't you, I, I'm, I'm so glad that God is a God of justice. Aren't you glad that he will make things right? He's going to make things right. And yet there is something terrifying about that too. Because if he's going to make things right, 
that means that there's things about me that need to be judged. So what do we do with that? Well, what we do is we look at what actually has staying power, what actually matters. Look in this passage in verse 24. After the dust settles, Herod and all his fury raging against the church, after the dust settles, the word of God increased and multiplied. So what do we do with our own fear of being judged by the Lord who is going to judge? What do we do with that? Look to God's word. Because in it, we find that there is salvation for guilty sinners like me and like you. There is salvation offered in Christ. God, who is the judge, has also made a way for us to be saved. The first sermon Peter preaches in Acts 2, the first Christian sermon, this is what's in God's word. Peter says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone. Everyone who calls. From every nation and tribe and tongue. And I think it's so cool the way um, that Acts chapter 13 begins. We just ended Acts chapter 12. Listen to how Acts chapter 13 begins. Now, they were in the church at Antioch. Prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene. And then there's Saul the biggest bully of the church. The biggest bully. Saul's saved. Saul's been redeemed and restored because of Jesus' grace. And you know who else is there with him? I skipped him. Look back at at verse one of chapter 13. Not only is Saul there, but there's also Manian, a member of the court of Herod. You think Luke accidentally put that in there? Of course not. He's saying, listen, Herod, Herod's done. Herod, his reign is over. But even for people who've been a lifelong friend of his, who've aligned with him, who've participated in his bullying, even those people are welcome to experience his grace. Whether you are a victim or a victimizer or both, you are welcome You're welcome to receive his grace. Let me pray for us. Father, um, we give you thanks that that you do redeem us and restore us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to, um, to believe in that and that that would make us people who bear the fruit of your spirit, um, people who are gentle and kind and patient and peaceful and self-controlled and faithful and good and loving. Would you make that church, this church that way like you, Lord Jesus? And may that be for your glory and for our neighbor's good. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.